An art historian who lives in Richmond, Dr. Elizabeth O'Leary, or Beth, is a former associate curator of American art at the BMFA. She, has, uh, she was the lead author of American Art at the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts, written with curatorial colleagues there. Beth's other books include From Morning to Night, Domestic Service in Maymont House and the Gilded Age South, and At Beck and Call, Representation of Domestic Servants in 19th Century American Painting. Her most recent book is a companion to the new exhibit which she curated across time, The History of the Grounds of the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts, and for our purposes I'll add the Virginia Historical Society as well. Please join me in welcoming Beth O'Leary. to share the story. Um, first of all, much of my research was done at the extraordinary archives and library here. Um, also, um, as Jamie mentioned, this is a mutual history. Uh, much of this is also the history of your grounds. And, and uh, last, this is very timely. This year, the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts commemorates the centennial anniversary of its founding collection. In 1919, 15 years before there was a state art museum, Battle Abbey, still ensconced here in the heart of this institution, agreed to temporarily house John Barton Payne's collection of paintings and sculpture, his gift to the Commonwealth of Virginia. So it's not a stretch to say this is where BMFA began. Documenting the history of Robinson House um, came about through VMFA's recent multi-year history initiative, and that coincided with its endeavor to refurbish this old structure. The Annabelle Mansion is one of four historic buildings that sit on VMFA's 15-acre campus. Now, all are owned by the museum, and all have been designated individually or as district resources as Virginia Historic Landmarks and on the National Register of Historic Places. Sadly, because of condition issues, Robinson House had to be shuttered uh, a good while back. <clears throat> In fact, it remained so for over 20 years. At last renovated, thanks to uh, major funding from the Commonwealth. It's open to the public officially tomorrow. <coughs> but VMFA has opened it for you today. Uh, if you have time after the lecture, uh, if you want to stop by this afternoon, it's a comfortable five-minute walk from here, so do come by and have a preview peek. Whenever you do visit, you'll notice a new addition. The third expansion in the structure's 190-year history. <coughs> Sensitively designed by Glave and Holmes, the small access wing houses an elevator and stairs, and it is carefully attached to the older building with three levels of glass porches. Occupying the upper floors, our offices of the museum's Human Resources Department, 
The first floor offers public spaces. It'll be open daily, admission free, uh, and there you'll find a brand new visitor center managed by Richmond Region Tourism. And across the hall, the new history exhibit. Um, and the history exhibit occupies the former double parlors of the Robinson family, and we're so lucky that the 1850s fireplaces, uh, the mantles, are still in place. The illustrated panels interpret the multi-layered story of human and cultural action on the site from the 17th century to the present. It features a lot of images, a few artifacts, and some AV components, including an interactive touchscreen that helps uh, orient visitors to the site. I know most of you are pretty well oriented uh, to location, but I thought this afternoon I would uh, start by showing you some of the screens from the touchscreen, and then afterwards take you through some of the key moments of the general history narrative. Now, as you, you touch the pad, are you dizzy? <laughs> as you touch the pad, you go way up in the air, and a series of images provide aerial views, and it takes you over time. Uh, this one capturing uh, today's view of the long city block where we're now gathered. Um, as we hover overhead, we're basically at the corner of Boulevard and Grove, uh, you see the constellation of institutional neighbors. And of course, here we are, way over here. Oh, sorry, way over here. My angle's a little skewed here. Um, at the Museum of uh, Virginia Museum of History and Culture, and from the air you can kind of spot uh, its various expansions. And coming along the boulevard, you see the um, Memorial Building, the national headquarters of the United Daughters of the Confederacy. Uh, VMFA with its new McLaughlin <coughs> wing. Here's the original 1936 wing. Coming around the Confederate Memorial Chapel and the Poly Center, which is the former home for Confederate women, and the E. Claiborne and Laura Robbins <coughs> Sculpture Garden. And it goes bloop up and over the parking deck. And I su suspect some of your cars are under there. Um, and then, of course, equidistance between our museums is Robinson House. And, and there it sits. And it's Robinson House that remains the constant as you travel back in time. So how do we go back in time through the decades? Through charming illustrations <laughs> made by artist Bob Scott. And here we've landed in 1960, a few years just after the opening of VMFA's first wing in 1954. You see the UDC Memorial Building, which opened um, only three years uh, later. And um, do you spot the Virginia Historical Society? <laughs> there it is. Uh, it had merged with the Confederate Memorial Association in just the year before, in 1959. Uh, they had moved there into Battle Abbey after building uh, its first wing. And at this time, the privately owned home for Confederate women was still in operation, and it, and it would be for another three decades. 
in the large suburban block, the central grounds were owned and maintained by the state of Virginia, including the chapel and Robinson House. And inside that old mansion, um, it was uh, a hive of activity. It was leased by the Virginia Institute for Scientific Research. Back we go, another three decades, to find the R.E. Lee Camp Confederate Soldiers Home when Robinson House, then called Fleming Hall, was the facility's administration building. This illustration captures only a few of its many buildings there. There were 35 buildings uh, on that big compound. But it gives you a wonderful rendering of the grounds with its uh, loop driveway, its series of 10 residential cottages, the hospital, there's the hospital right here, uh, and the chapel built for the veterans' use uh, at the soldiers' home. And then um, if you look uh, to the north, uh, earlier in the 20th century, the soldiers' home board donated its six northernmost acres uh, for the grounds of the Confederate Memorial Association uh, to build that institution popularly known as Battle Abbey. Um, beforehand, <clears throat> this area um, held orchards. Uh, it's first established by the Robinson family, and there were crops. And uh, uh, during the soldiers' home era, they raised crops for the dining hall and also <clears throat> to sell at market. Okay, a large leap in time. 1860. We're out in the countryside now. This is the country estate of Anthony Robinson, Jr., um, here, his country house sits near a large grove of trees, as well as cultivated farmlands. A fun tip when you're at the touchscreen and exploring, I can't do this with this, use your little fingers and go in a little closer uh, to catch some of the really charming details of Bob's illustrations. <coughs> and when you go in closer here and look at the farmyard of Robinson House, you also see the, the cabins where the enslaved laborers resided. And that's where the touch screen ends, it leaves off. But it's a good jumping off place to engage the exhibition. Uh, it's a chronological narrative that expands on these chapters, but it also takes you even further back to previous centuries, reminding you that for thousands of years, Virginia's native peoples passed through this once forested land while hunting and fishing along the banks of the James River. At the time of English landfall, uh, the site marked the western perimeter of the chiefdom of Powhatan. While no town stood on this place, the broad alliance of Algonquin-speaking tribes inhabited close to 150 settlements between here and the Chesapeake Bay. By the mid-1600s, when the Powhatan peoples had been weakened by war, treaty, and disease, the English laid claim to this region during expanding colonization. In 1679, the Virginia Assembly gave this land as part of a large land grant to the prominent trader and militiaman, William Byrd. Amassing a vast amount of property before his death, he bequeathed thousands of acres to his son, William Byrd II, 
pictured here, who helped establish the city, the uh, plan for the city of Richmond. And then all, of course, was inherited by his son, William Byrd III, who managed to squander the family fortune. <laughs> by 1767, he found the need to sell most of the land by lottery, including this area of the Henrico frontier. By the early 19th century, John Harvey Jr., the fourth mayor of Richmond, had acquired nearly 1,200 acres of the former bird property west of the city. And on, on this map, you see the city uh, bound, the city delineated by the color, that's sort of the tan color. Um, the Harvey property is the white area uh, to the left, to the west of the city. During a frenzy of real estate speculation, his son, Jacqueline Harvey, and his partners set aside over 500 acres to create the town of Sydney in 1815. And they laid out streets, and they defined hundreds of quarter-acre uh, lots. And um, their <coughs> development is illustrated here. It's this odd little bird-shaped um, property all laid out here to the west of the city of Richmond. So this is the, the town of Sydney. Well, it happens. The real estate bubble burst. Uh, the development scheme failed before much development went on, and, and those lots lay dormant for years. Um, but there was one individual who benefited from the fire sale prices of the Sydney lots, and that was Anthony Robinson, Jr., who, beginning in 1825, um, began acquiring contiguous lots in, in the western side of the, the Sydney development. He was a city resident who wanted to establish a country seat, and he gradually purchased 190 acres of woods and open countryside. Um, and I outlined his par, uh, estate here in blue. Um, to give you a, an idea of the size of the Robinson estate, the northernmost um, of his property would have touched today's Monument Avenue, and the southern boundary would have extended down to Cary Street. It went west to Belmont <coughs> Avenue and east to today's Davis Street, and that funny little ear-shaped um, extension is Scuffletown. Now, impressed by a sizable stand of old-growth oaks that once graced the site, Robinson named his estate The Grove, and hence we have Grove Avenue. In the late 1820s, he established a small country out house out here, that little dot in the center of the estate, that's, that's Robinson House. And you'll, you'll look and you'll see another blue dot just inside the city line right there, and that's, that's his city house. And there it is, um, where he lived in the 1850s. It's still there today on the corner of uh, Franklin and Madison. Let's meet the Robinsons. There they are. <laughs> I was lucky to find a descendant in Louisiana who kindly shared their photos. And as you can see, these were taken a good long while into their later years. And judging from Rebecca's mourning clothes, the images date to about 1860 after the death of their oldest son. Anthony was a seventh generation Virginian descended from a prominent York County planter family. 
And as a young man, he rose to prominence in Richmond, serving in his 20s as an appointee to the State Board of Public Works, and then afterwards, for many years, as an official with the Bank of Virginia. Rebecca Webb Couch was raised in rural Goochland County. Her parents were prominent Quakers who, before their birth, freed their enslaved people as a matter of conscience. As a child, she and her siblings relocated to the city with her widowed mother and somehow made um, Anthony's acquaintance. In 1812, she and Anthony <coughs> married, and they were aged, well, let's see, she was 16 at the time, and Anthony was 19. Her life changed dramatically. Not only did the young country girl become a member of Richmond's wealthy elite, but she set aside her abolitionist upbringing to become the wife of a slaveholder. And over the next 30 years, she bore him 11 children, 10 of whom lived to adulthood. Another reason why she looks a little tired <laughs> at this time. In the 1830s and 40s, Anthony became an enthusiastic gentleman farmer whose livestock and crops won prizes from the local agricultural and horticulture society. When visiting the estate at the Grove, he and family members could stay in the modest farmhouse he built around 1828. And here you see a reconstructed floor plan and elevation of that one-story dwelling. A central hall plan with two chimneys. And we can recreate this footprint from investigative research undertaken by Glave and Holmes. They were able to determine that this first dwelling is still there, embedded within the foundations and walls of Robinson House. Leaving the banking business in the early 1840s, Robinson prospered further by investing in and leasing city real estate. He also became deeply involved in Democratic Party politics on a county and state level. In 1855, he ran for election as Henrico County clerk, but his opponents pointed out the fact that he didn't live in Henrico County. So, Anthony took out this big ad to respond that he lived close enough. <laughs> and he says, you know, I live 50 feet from the county line. I, I can see Henrico from my porch. <laughs> and he could. But his more convincing argument is that for 15 years, his chief employment, agriculture, was in the county. Well, he didn't win the election, but his political aspirations lingered and prompted him to relocate to the Grove for year-round residency. But first, the summer house had to be expanded. By the late 1850s, workmen were out there. Uh, we found evidence of the invoice there in the top right showing that they were measuring to estimate orders for windows and bricks and plasters, all indicating that they're gonna build a substantial mansion. And, and you did. Uh, you see the completed two-story Robinson house at bottom right. And while the dwelling's internal central hall plan remained and, and was quite traditional, the exterior wasn't. 
uh, its features were distinctly Italianate, a residential style recently introduced to the region. Now we don't know the designer for the mansion, but we can safely guess that inspiration for the quote cottage villa likely came from contemporary design books such as Cottage Residences by New York architect Andrew J. Downing. And you're seeing an illustration from that book here uh, on the top left. Characteristic Italianate elements include the wide roof eaves with brackets, double paired windows with decorative surrounds and ornamental hoods, and a portico with double columns, all in evidence in the Robinsons' fashionable new abode. And their new residence was completed in the late 1850s, and the Robinsons and four of their grown children moved in. There were other people living at the Grove. During the antebellum years, the Robinsons relied on enslaved African Americans to perform house and farm chores. While the number of people owned by the couple varied over time, an 1860s slave schedule lists a dozen individuals on the estate, men, women, and children who ranged in age from one to 60 years, and they likely resembled the multi-generational slave community pictured in this 1862 photograph from the Gaines Farm in Hanover County. The Robinson Family Papers at the Library of Virginia also includes receipts that indicate that besides through birth, the Robinsons also acquired slaves by renting them by the year from other owners or purchasing them outright. Uh, the top receipt is the handwritten um, receipt where uh, the Robinsons uh, hired a man by the year for $41. The bottom receipt is pre-printed by the Hector and Davis slave trading firm and it shows the purchase of a man named John for $1,740. And based on an 1865 map drawn by a Union surveyor just after the war, got a good indication of the location of the slave cabins at the Robinson Estate. Coming a little bit closer, uh, we can see, we find the house, and there, there it is, and the driveway that comes from Grove Road. And then there's a parallel road that leads uh, west to the two dwellings, and those are the slave houses. And in fact, uh, the 1860 slave schedule does confirm that there were two slave houses on the property. Anthony Robinson died in the summer of 1861, just a few months after the commencement of the Civil War. His will leaves the, quote, mansion house and 48 surrounding acres to Rebecca. And that's include, uh, indicated here in green on the map. And, the, and you notice the red outline of the, the rest of the property, which he bequeathed uh, to his living children. He also bequeathed such material property as carriages, farm implements, livestock, and slaves. The remaining land uh, was eventually sold by the different children, uh, some of them very quickly, and some held on to him for generations. Now, as she settled her husband's affairs, the widow Rebecca faced additional challenges during the war. Her teenage son, Channing, remained at home as her primary helpmate. 
unfolding sectional conflict divided the family. Five of her sons served the Confederacy, while two of her daughters resided in the North, having earlier married Quaker business partners in Philadelphia. And she faced a growing labor shortage. The Confederate Army requisitioned at least one male slave from the estate to labor in defense trenches, and several others ran away, prompting the placement of newspaper ads offering costly rewards for their return. Um, here's the sampling from the Daily Dispatch. The top is from 1861, uh, looking for an 18-year-old named John Alvis, who escaped from a work detail at the Manchester Battery. 1863, Channing placed an ad for his mother for a, quote, man named Ben. A few lines down, he says that man is 13 years old. 1864 documents a substantial loss. Quote, my mother's carriage driver, John, makes you wonder, is that the same John that they purchased just the year before? So what happened to these folks? Uh, were they captured, killed? Did they make it to a contraband camp beyond uh, Union lines? Well, we, we just don't know. And we don't know the fate either of those who remained behind at the Grove to eventually gain emancipation at the end of the war. After the fall of Richmond in April 1865, Rebecca invited Union officers to establish a headquarters at the Grove to ward off possible looting an offer they accepted during the early months of military occupation. In the post-war years, Rebecca uh, and the Robinson family fortune dwindled through inflation and a busted economy. And just as things were beginning to stabilize, the family suffered more setbacks during the financial panic of 1873. Rebecca died four years later, bequeathing the Grove to Channing, who, as her will indicates, spent his own inheritance in keeping the place afloat. Uh, this photograph was made not long after, is made in 1880. And before donating this photograph to the Ballantine Museum, <coughs> excuse me, in the 1950s, one of the Robinson's grandchildren helpfully wrote the names of the individual pictured. And so here we get in a little bit closer and we see Channing standing right here. Um, this is his sister, Anne, and his niece, Rebecca, his brother, Christopher, and uh, Christopher's son, George, and an unidentified uh, carriage driver. <coughs> Not pictured is another significant individual, Alberta Johnson, the African-American cook, who, according to the 1880 census, also resided here along with her son, James. In November 1884, Channing sold the mansion and a surrounding 36 acres to a newly formed Confederate veterans organization. And the next big chapter for Robinson House and its land uh, began. In April 1883, a group of former Confederate uh, uh, soldiers met in Richmond to discuss the dire circumstances of their comrades who were indigent and disabled, forming the R.E. Lee Camp Number 1, Confederate Veterans, and I'll call them Lee Camp from here on <laughs> for short, 
the association soon defined its primary goal, and that was to build a home for former soldiers who could no longer care for themselves. Over the next 50 years, Lee Camp gained renown as one of the nation's preeminent Confederate veterans organizations. And before its membership died out in the 1930s, the group helped fund monuments and buildings, attend veterans' events and funerals, and chartered over 100 other camps. Uh, but their greatest accomplishment, and I, we know this because they tell us again and again, they're very, very proud of founding the R.E. Lee Camp Confederate Soldiers Home. Now, to build a large veterans compound required extensive fundraising. Immediately, Lee Camp found a surprising and yet steadfast ally in Phil Kearney, post number 10, Grand Army of the Republic, the GAR. This is the Richmond-based Association of Union Veterans. Um, they're not pictured here. I'm sorry to say, I can't find a picture of our um, local GAR unit. Instead, I'm showing you a photo of a New York GAR chapter as a stand-in for our Richmond case, but it gives you an idea. Um, at the Union Men's Suggestion, officers of both veterans organizations signed and mailed an urgent plea to GAR units across the United States, and the response was swift and generous. With donations of funds, and supplies arriving from Union veterans posts as far away as Montana. The collaborative effort between former enemies prompted nationwide publicity, and here you see the joint appeal published in the Florida Mirror. It takes care to point out, in one of the paragraphs, the very unusual relationship between the veterans the blue and the gray, one paragraph states, quote, lives in harmony and act in accord. Phil Carney Post GAR and Lee Camp CB meet at each other's campfires and occupy the same hall, which is decorated with the flags of our country and the walls are ornamented by portraits of leaders of each army of the late war. It's remarkable, this is 25 years after the end of the war. <coughs> And indeed, the groups uh, initially rented the same assembly hall uh, over a store on Broad Street, and they met on different nights. I have to show off. I, this is one of my favorite finds in my research, um, and it gives evidence of that close relationship. It records the minutes for the December 4, 1884 meeting of the Confederate veterans. But notice, the secretary didn't have any papers, so he used what was at hand. He took the, the minutes on the Union veterans' letterhead. <laughs> Officers from the veterans' groups also went on the road, and they traveled up and down the eastern seaboard on a marketing junket to drum up support from GAR members in major cities. Uh, Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, Trenton, New York, Boston, and the efforts brought impressive results, including the formation of fundraising committees and events in those cities. I left as a flyer for a New York acting troupe that traveled throughout the South, an effort endorsed by famous living generals from both sides. 
In the spring of 1884, there were several well-publicized fundraising events held in the New York region, including a benefit performance at the Metropolitan <coughs> Opera, a mass rally at the Cooper Union, and a, quote, testimonial entertainment at the Brooklyn Academy of Music, and I'm showing you the program at right. And if you look closely, you'll see the keynote speaker was the famous abolitionist, <coughs> Henry Ward Beecher. Now, through these various efforts, an additional $8,000 was raised for the Richmond facility, including a reported contribution of $500 from former commanding general and former U.S. President Ulysses S. Grant. This revenue was added to the substantial funds raised during the three-week Confederate Soldiers Home Fair held here in Richmond, which sold and auctioned items that had come from northern and southern donors alike. Lee Camp published a daily tabloid during the big event. It's titled The Blue and the Gray, which uh, it was explained in the editorials that, uh, about the collaborative effort for the fundraising. And each edition lists the kinds of contributed goodies that were to be auctioned on that particular day. Artworks, fabrics, musical instruments, sewing machines, guns, furniture, food, drugs, wine, tobacco, on and on. This one adds, I love this particular passage, uh, auction that day from the animal kingdom, a horse, cow, hog, and last but not least, a live alligator, <laughs> warranted not to bite or need feeding for three months. <laughs> was over, the Daily Dispatch predicted that the fundraising goal had already been surpassed, writing, quote, Lee Camp and the people of Richmond have put their hands to the work. The liberality of the northern people is deserving of all praise. It will make the home a monument of reconciliation. It's a landmark separating the times of enmity and unity, end quote. And indeed, the fair was a huge success, bringing in $24,000, so um, a little over half a million dollars in today's money. With the added revenue from the GAR efforts, Lee Camp had ample cash to purchase the former Robinson property in November 1884. <coughs> the facility opened the following May, and this is the earliest photograph of the new Lee Camp Confederate Soldiers Home taken a few months later in August of 1885. And to orient you, if you were uh, standing at this place today, you'd be standing right at the boulevard, looking at the side of Robinson House. <coughs> and of course, at this time, it was still two stories. On a tripod stand, the camp pennant flies before the towering oaks that still populated the grove. Now what's new in this picture are the other buildings. These were designed by local architect Marion J. DeMock, a former Confederate captain. Built in picturesque shingle style are the large mess hall at the right, here with the tall cupola. And uh, to the left, and you can see them through the, the trees, um, the first three of their new residential cottages, they're still under construction, and each one had a different plan. Altogether, there'd be 10 cottages, including the Commandant's residence. Now we come in a little closer look in the photograph. Um, during much of its first year, first year and a half actually, Robinson House 
was the soldier's home, if that was it. Um, the old mansion sheltered the facility's first residences until the cottages were ready. And we can just make out the fellows here. They're shadowy figures who gather around the porch um, that was once on the east side of the building. And what's remarkable about this picture is that it also shows a very famous new resident, uh, probably the reason that the photo was made, the horse. Here's another picture of the home's first occupants, taken likely the same day. An interesting assortment. Uh, some are physically disabled, others are obviously challenged in other ways, and we can only imagine the uh, mental effects of aging and for some being homeless for quite a while. The horse is Little Sorrel, the famous war horse of General T.J. Stonewall Jackson. The decrepit 36-year-old gelding came to live at the soldier's home in late summer 1885, courtesy of Jackson's widow, and the arrangement was brokered by Dr. Hunter Holmes McGuire, and he's in this picture too in the light suit there at center. Um, before I change this, I wanted to point out the orchard um, behind the fellows. We're looking north towards where this museum will eventually be, but you can see the old orchard. The former Robinson dwelling, which had already undergone one major expansion, took on a third floor in 1886, and it also acquired a new name, Fleming Hall, in honor of the architect who donated expansion plans and funds. Robert Fleming was a former Confederate officer who gained renown in the post-war years as a designer of high-style buildings in Washington, D.C. <coughs> to ensure that his addition appeared concurrent with the house's earlier details, he employed similar Italianate motifs of the original building. Now at the rooftop level, he provided late Victorian embellishments, the tall corbel chimneys, and um, the fanciful belvedere with its steep pyramidal roof. These changes transformed the old farmhouse into an imposing administrative headquarters, and over the next half century, the rechristened Fleming Hall would house the office of the commandant and his senior staff, the library, a war museum on the first floor, and over time, the upper floors served variously as medical wards, resident <coughs> barracks, and staff lodging. The period photos like this, um, this one here, this uh, a wonderful one from the Valentine's Cook Collection, gives us uh, remarkable details. If you come in a little bit closer, it gives us this intriguing glimpse of the, the building's west wall. This is the side that you, when you come out of the parking deck and you're right there, this is where you're looking. Uh, so notice the large bell mounted on the second floor, and you can see a little string uh, going in the window. So you can imagine it was somebody's job to go and pull and ring that several times a day to call the veterans to the mess hall. And there's a funny little side porch with its uh, huge decorative brackets. And then on it is mounted a sign. And what it reads is guard room. Now, as the home's headquarters, it makes sense that there'll be a security detail. But there were other things to guard. In the early years, Lee Camp solicited Civil War relics to the exhibit, quote, in the brick building in the house, 
arranged with glass cases securely locked and under guard. And donations came in over time, making Robinson House the site of the first Civil War Museum in Virginia. The collection, according to a later newspaper account, included uniforms, canteens, guns, paintings, flags, shells, and an anachronistic set of medieval armor. <laughs> the museum's most important historical relic was also its first acquisition, Little Sorrel. After a trip to the taxidermist, the famous horse returned to the soldier's home where he thrilled visitors for decades. And in the exhibit, you'll find the exact spot where he stood until 1949. Through the 1890s, the compound grew at a steady pace. In this photograph montage, we're looking uh, through the entrance <coughs> of the soldier's home from Grove Street. And visitors entered uh, at the little loop driveway and there uh, at the far end, they would, would find Fleming Hall, Robinson House, right there. And then um, also at the, the northern end, there's the hospital um, and then the series of cottages. Just over here, out of view, is the uh, Confederate Memorial Chapel. The picturesque cottages are featured in period postcards from the early 20th century. Uh, here you see the residents posing with some of the uh, several cannon and uh, limbers that dotted the grounds. Several of the Napoleon 12-pounders still worked, and they were fired by veterans on several occasions. Sadly, in 1886, a 60-year-old resident lost his life when a cannon discharged prematurely during a salute on the grounds in honor of visiting U.S. President Grover Cleveland. By 1908, the date of this photograph, the soldier's home was in its heyday, well on its way to a peak population of 300 men. In its center, you can spot the original mess hall, with a peak room hall, now converted to a barracks. Uh, a large brick uh, dining hall had been built to the west. And at far right is the facade of the 100-bed hospital, also designed by Marion DeMock, as was the non-denominational Soldiers Home Chapel. Completed in 1887, this beautiful little building provided space for church services, certainly, but also served as an auditorium for assemblies, lectures, and concerts. And over time, the chapel would host approximately 1,700 funerals for the residents, many of whom were laid to rest in a special section of Hollywood Cemetery. The shingle-style frame chapel is a wonderful example of Carpenter Gothic style, and it still stands on the grounds today uh, at the corner of Grove and Shepherd, and it's open to the public daily if you wanna uh, take some time to pop in and look around. The interior uh, looks remarkably like it did during the Soldier's Home era with this vaulted ceiling and rows of hand-hewn pews. The raised chancels framed by a soaring three-arch opening the original hand-lettered inscription notes that the building was, quote, dedicated to the memory of the Confederate dead. The memorial stained glass windows are remarkable, and while the Soldiers' Home Board was unable to find contributions for all of its Lancet windows, seven were donated in the late 1880s by local families and battalion associations. And these include 
four extremely rare examples created by the Belcher Mosaic Glass Company of New Jersey. Its owner, Henry Belcher, had only recently patented a unique method of manufacture, which fused tiny uh, pieces of glass, often triangular, uh, with molten lead that was poured in from all sides, and when it dried, it created a single sheet. Belcher gained prominence, and there are examples of his work uh, in homes and churches up and down the eastern seaboard. He was soon eclipsed by the better-known stained-glass artisans Lagarde and Tiffany, and he shut down his company in 1890 after only six years, leaving a limited number of windows completed and today very few surviving. <coughs> so what was the daily life for the occupants? A 1904 letter from resident Benjamin J. Rogers describes the facility as, quote, a home in the true sense of the word for the old boys. For the inmates, as they were called at the time, daily life revolved around a semi-military routine of chores and inspection. And according to ability, they men performed tasks like housekeeping, gardening, farm chores, tending the sick, and guard duty. Prohibited behaviors such as drunkenness and insubordination resulted in added duties, house arrest, or expulsion. Good behavior brought furloughs and streetcar passes, and there's lots of leisure activities on the grounds, card playing, chess, checkers, <coughs> betting was strictly uh, forbidden. And there they could interact with visitors and school children, there were lectures, concerts, and picnics sponsored by local organizations. The facility became the nation's best known, most successful, and longest running Confederate soldiers home. And it's, in its 56 years of operation, it housed approximately 3,000 veterans in total, uh, coming from 33 states. Now, as you might imagine, running such a facility was expensive. It required a large operating budget and in spite of its high profile and successful fundraising at the start, just within a few years, the uh, Lee Camp and the Soldiers Home Board realized they couldn't maintain the facility on private donations alone. So, of course, they went to the General Assembly for an appropriation. They got it. They returned again in 1892 and asked for an increase. Well, at that time, the General Assembly asked that, well, we can do that, but would you promise to give us the deed when it was no longer needed for the Confederate veterans, which they did. And so several times <coughs> over the next decades, Virginia lawmakers met to increase appropriations and also extend the period of time. And by the time the home closed, the state had funded over 80% of its total operating expenses. In the early 20th century, with residents still healthy enough to maintain the buildings and grounds, the place was, quote, the picture of restfulness and peace with everything neat as a pen, as the Richmond uh, Dispatch said. And it appears so in the watercolors of the veterans and the grounds made by artist Margaret May Dashiell. And this one on the left is one um, of several in the BMFA collection. The home was featured in tourist handbooks and national articles, and as you saw earlier, uh, was the subject of postcards, this one featuring the formal garden near the boulevard. Other featured views of Fleming Hall, 
and the home was also photographed for stereographic cards. It became a must-visit stop in the tourist circuit in 1896 when the Richmond Dispatch anticipated thousands of veterans coming to the city to attend a United Confederate Veterans Reunion. It published an illustration featuring some of the key monuments of the city, and there, sandwiched in the middle, is a view of the soldier's home, and there's Robinson House with this distinctive Belvedere. Over the next three and a half decades, Richmond would host several more national UCV reunions and countless numbers of Confederate veterans' gatherings, um, small and large. Uh, and the soldier's home became the must-visit uh, place for musters, picnics, speeches, and the sharing of wartime remembrances and integral to these events was interaction with the home's residences. As historian R.B. Rosenberg points out, the gray-clad old soldiers themselves served as, quote, living monuments to the lost cause. And while the destitute veterans found true refuge there, they became significant relics in their own right, like a little sorrel ensconced in his glass case, the, quote, old boys were visited, photographed, and sketched by the generations of visitors. And these included Union veterans who traveled individually or as groups to visit Richmond and nearby battlefields. <laughs> the Soldiers' Home became a regular stop as a venue for blue and gray events. There were dozens of combined reunions and reciprocal events by veterans groups. And this fueled a national movement towards reconciliation between the former foes and, by example, toward reunification of the country. From the widespread press during its founding, Lee Camp gained reputation for its hospitality, hosting numerous TAR posts to Richmond, and they in turn were celebrated and feted in the cities up north. Um, this photograph was taken in the summer of 1887, and everyone's posing on the east side of Robinson House. And it shows dozens of members of a Lynn, Massachusetts GAR post. Um, they came down and spent several days in Richmond with their wives. And closer inspection uh, shows them cozied up with Lee Camp members enjoying the shared camaraderie. And if you look to the right, you can spot this pair. And you can imagine just before the photographer's glass plate was exposed that they shook hands. Now, beginning on Friday, Robinson House opens as a tourist visitor center, but it turns out that this isn't the first time the building served this function. During the Soldiers' Home era, the building welcomed hundreds of visitors each month, uh, and they came from all regions and all walks of life. And as they visited the museum and gazed upon Little Sorrel, they took a moment to sign the guest register. And we found a single surviving ledger, and you'll see it in the exhibit. It dates between 1912 and 1914. <coughs> a survey of its pages reveals that in just 18 months, they had guests from 40 different states and the territories of Alaska and Hawaii. There are also visitors from 14 other countries, including <coughs> South Africa, Japan, and India. Signatures during this short period includes notable guests, including the uh, department store mogul, J.C. Penney, uh, and S.S. Craigie, another uh, department store mogul, U.S. Representative Sam Rayburn, 
and a contingency of various chiefs and their entourage from the Blackfeet Nation in Montana, each signing his or her name with a pictograph. Time was no friend to the aging veterans at the soldiers' home. The census began to decline after 1912 when the facility reached its peak population, and thereafter illness and death uh, began to, to take the, uh, the numbers down. In 1925, near the time that uh, Dashiell painted this sensitive portrait of a resident, this one from uh, the, the uh, uh, BMHC's collection, I, I keep practicing those initials, I bet you do too. Um, um, by the time that uh, Dashiell made this uh, portrait, the uh, board reported 160 residents by 1930, there were a total of 62, half of them living full-time in the hospital. And I'm showing you a detail of the hospital uh, door here on the left. Five years later, there were just a dozen residents. Now, at the same time, the physical condition of the soldiers' home buildings were deteriorating drastically. The home's healthier residents, those not confined long-term care to long-term care in the hospital, were clustered in a few buildings to the north end so they had a short walk to the mess hall and to medical care. This left a string of empty cottages behind them. Uh, this photo from 1935 shows several of them boarded up with broken windows. That year, concerned about fire hazard and the cost of insurance, the Soldiers Home Board voted to demolish most of them. And then three years later, when the population dropped to eight, Governor George Peary proposed closing the soldiers' home as an economic move. Um, this was the Great Depression, after all. But two of the residents addressed the General Assembly, pleading for the opportunity to live out the remaining lives there. And the committee conceded, and the final uh, veteran, John Wesley Jack Blizzard, pictured here, died on January 29, 1941. The soldier's home came to an end, and the Commonwealth assumed full ownership of the property, especially like this picture, because not only do you see the little sorrel, but you see a little bit more of the uh, war museum inside and that distinctive marble fireplace. Now, there was intense activity on our long city block in the decades of the 20th century, and in our short remaining time, and I can only skim the surface of this complicated metamorphosis of the grounds, from 1910 and over the next 80 years, various representatives of scientific, cultural, and charitable groups, as well as state and city officials, stepped forward to compete, negotiate, claim, and sometimes relinquish parcels of it. And as this aerial photograph shows us, the result was the erection of several significant monumental buildings. This image captures the transitional appearance of the still operating soldiers' home in 1937. Uh, we're looking uh, west in this direction, and here we see uh, in 1937, this is still uh, the Confederate Memorial Institute uh, on its um, grounds. Uh, the soldier's home, what's left here is Robinson House, uh, the hospital right here, the, the formal garden. Randolph Hall is the recreation hall. The cottages are already demolished. They're no longer here. 
But what we see here is the uh, home for Confederate women uh, facing Shepherd Street. And over here, the, the brand new, just one year old, Virginia Museum of Fine Arts. And because we're gathered here in this institution, we need a little closer look on the North End here. I'm not gonna linger over uh, the long history of Battle Abbey, especially for this audience. I, I do do it in the book. I do look at it a lot more. But relevant to today's survey is the fact that in 1910, the state and Lee Camp jointly granted those six northernmost acres of the soldiers' home to build the Confederate Memorial Institute, a long-envisioned memorial house uh, that would hold Confederate papers, relics, and artifacts. This intriguing photo, just so familiar to most of you, documents the laying of the cornerstone in May 1912. <coughs> um, and as you know, in the education lobby, you can see the contents of that uh, cornerstone that um, is just fascinating. Well, looking at the mix of dignitaries and spectators, you can also pick out some of the veterans from the soldiers' home. They came over together as a contingency um, you know, I can spot them usually because of their, their clothing, like uh, this fellow right here. This fellow's pooped. <laughs> he's, he's really ready to go back and have lunch. I think he's, he's not watching. The image also provides a unique glimpse of the north side of the compound, the soldier's home compound from a distance. So we see the, the roof of the hospital. Uh, here's Pegram Hall. And then here's the roof of Robinson House and, and its uh, Belvedere. After many delays, Battle Abbey finally opened to the public May 3rd, 1921. And we get a wonderful view of this in this vintage postcard. The Philadelphia architectural firm Bissell and Sinker designed the neoclassical building and the Boston landscape architect Warren H. Manning planned its formal gardens. The Institute featured the Charles Hoffbauer's large-scale memorial military murals, which we know were just beautifully restored recently. And when you look here, there's a little bump out to the west. This is uh, the Lee Camp Annex. The uh, Confederate Veterans Organization paid for half of that annex to um, exhibit the organization's portrait collection. <coughs> Um, and also, as noted earlier, while we're looking at this, the Northern Gallery, which um, was originally planned to be a library, um, the building opened uh, exhibiting the John Barton Payne Fine Arts Collection, and it would be there for the next 15 years. In 1946, the Virginia Historical Society absorbed the Confederate Memorial Institute, and uh, after undertaking much-needed repairs and building its library wing, it moved its headquarters to the site 13 years later. And over time, and with five significant expansions, today's Virginia Museum of History and Culture remains the state's premier history institution. In 1932, a monumental limestone building to the southwest of our shared block opened as a residence for poor and infirm female relatives of Confederate veterans. It was the third venue for this charitable organization, but by far it was the grandest. Built and operated with both private donations and state support, 
The home for Confederate women was designed by Richmond architect Merrill Lee. Emulating the classical lines and motifs of the White House, the building's soaring ionic portico fronts Shepherd Street. Uh, again, a wonderful vintage postcard. This aerial view is from 1934, and it features the newly built uh, women's home, but you look closely and you see it's located back to back with the soldiers' home cottages, just months away from their demolition. The women's home remained in operation for the next 50 years. Running out of funds as its limited population died out, the facilities board voted to close in 1989, and with lifetime stipends provided from the Commonwealth, its handful of residents relocated to a modern nursing facility. Assuming ownership of the building, the state transferred its care to VMFA in 1990 and today renovated and renamed the Stan and Dorothy Polly Center. It houses museum offices and meeting rooms, as well as the headquarters of the Virginia Association of Museums. In 1933, the very year that the Women's Home opened its doors, the state legislature accepted a $100,000 grant from John Barton Payne to construct an art museum to house his collection and also future works of art acquired by the Commonwealth. Mind you, it was a matching grant, and that was quite a challenge in the depths of the Great Depression, but with WPA funds and a fundraising campaign in the private sector, the match was made. In December, the ground was broken for the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts on the southeast corner of the Soldier's Home, and this photograph reminds us that the Soldier's Home was still in operation at the time, uh, if you look in the distance, you can see some of the buildings, including Robinson House in the distance. Here it is right here. Negotiations for the location of the art museum were intense, resulting in an agreement that as the art museum took its place, uh, the remaining grounds would be named the R.E. Lee Camp Confederate Memorial Park, a designation that remains today. VMFA was officially dedicated in January 1936 as the nation's first state-supported, privately endowed fine arts museum. The Norfolk architectural firm Peoples and Ferguson described their colonial revival design as, quote, English Renaissance of the Wren period. And, and that's what we say, just like that, because they said it. Just as historic Battle Abbey remains at the core of this facility, this structure remains embedded in the heart of the now much expanded VMFA, and you can see the original facade from the boulevard. In 1957, on land formerly occupied by the Soldiers Home Hospital, the United Daughters of the Confederacy opened its national headquarters, and it was funded by the UDC through private donations and through a major contribution from the Commonwealth. Dedicated to the women of the Confederacy, the marble-clad memorial building was designed by Richmond architects Ballou and Justice in a sleek, strict classical style. In operation over the past 60 years, it still houses UDC's National Administrative Center and includes the offices of the President General, a ceremonial Great Hall, two libraries, and an archives, which you can visit uh, with an appointment. So what about Robinson House? What was happening at this time? 
Well, when the soldiers' home uh, compound closed in 1941, the Commonwealth assumed ownership of the mostly derelict buildings and surrounding grounds. And by year's end, all but the chapel, a utility building, and Robinson House had been razed. For eight years, the old war museum and the mansion remained open to the public through the auspices of the Virginia Division of the United Daughters of the Confederacy, which had inherited its contents. In 1949, the UDC relocated the collections to other sites, which included donating Little Sorrel to the Virginia Military Institute, and he's still on view there. He, um, I, I read that he had a, a shampoo recently. <laughs> An impetus uh, for the moving the contents out was the fact that the state had just leased Robinson House to a new occupant. From 1949 to 1963, the Virginia Museum, I mean, I'm sorry, the Virginia Institute for Scientific Research occupied the Antebellum Building. Sponsored by the Virginia Academy of Science, the nonprofit agency provided research facilities to support the fundamental study of raw materials with the goal of developing new industries in the state. BISR employed up to 30 scientists at a time and held contracts with private corporations, government agencies, and the U.S. military. During the Cold War era, it also gained an international reputation for preparing and supplying metal single crystals for use by other research agencies. During these years, Robinson House interiors were fitted with a dense maze of laboratory benches and apparatus. As a safety precaution in the event of radioactive and chemical spillage, individual water showers were installed above the hallway doors. And you can see the one of them being demonstrated by, in 1959, this is Director Fontaine C. Armstead, uh, who's showing how the, the showers work to a, a newspaper reporter. Now, within a decade, it was clear that the Science Institute had outgrown the old house. It vacated the mansion in 1963 to occupy a spacious new facility on the University of Richmond campus. The next leaseholder <coughs> was the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts. Uh, that they signed a lease with the Commonwealth of Virginia. After a year-long renovation, they needed to get the showers out, first of all, um, they transformed the building into a multi-purpose art annex, which included gallery space for changing exhibits by Virginia artists. And on the right is a photograph of Anne Robinson Duval, granddaughter of the mansion's original owners, as she attended the opening of the art annex in March 1964. And I, I love that photograph, that gesture of past and present as she's touching her grandparents' mantelpiece. She's gazing pleasantly up at an abstract painting. <coughs> During the next 30 years, Robinson House brimmed with contemporary art. In addition to the gallery, it accommodated the museum studio school with classrooms, a kiln room, and two private studios for an artist-in-residence program. It also <coughs> housed the office and storage for BMFA's loan-own program, which facilitated the rental and sale of artworks to the public. Uh, these photos are from the late 1960s, um, showing a painting class 
and also the loan on storage. And it's manned by a, a young educator named Fred Brandt, who went on to become uh, BMFA's curator of the, the Lewis uh, Modern Contemporary Collection. In 1993, the studio school would move across Grove Avenue to a pair of adjoined Victorian mansions that were donated to the Commonwealth from the Health South Corporation. And classes and exhibitions are still held, held there today uh, in these very distinctive 1898 buildings. Through the second half of the century, VMFA grew dramatically it's a whole other book. I'm not doing it, but somebody will. The decades between uh, the 1850s and 18, uh, I'm sorry, 1950s and 1980s brought four major expansions. And each edition has its own interesting story of planning and fundraising, and each required the approval of sequential governors, legislatures, and sometimes rulings by state attorneys general. And you can see three of the editions in this aerial view from the late 1970s. Uh, here's your original BMFA, the first wing, the 1954 wing, 1970. By the way, these wings were um, fairly well planned at the beginning. Uh, they just, you know, it took a while for them to, to build them. The 1976 wing, uh, you'll remember the curvilinear walls. Uh, this was uh, by architect David Hardwick, and then the uh, uh, fenced sculpture garden, uh, outdoor sculpture garden. Any of you attended Jumpin'? That's that's where you were down, down in there. And then the little road went between that wall and Robinson House as you went back here. This is before uh, the building of the West Wing. Uh, the, that was uh, built to house thousands of world-class artworks donated by two couples, collectors and philanthropists Francis and Sidney Lewis and Paul and Rachel Mellon. And of course, this is the same Mr. Mellon, so crucial to the development of this institution. The new postmodern expansion designed by New York architect Malcolm Holtzman opened in 1985. Uh, eight years later, in 1993, the Commonwealth transferred ownership of Robinson House, the chapel, and the rest of the central grounds to VMFA. And this set the stage for a dramatic transformation of the museum uh, at the turn of the new millennium. In every way, over the decades, the museum kept growing exponentially in programs and its permanent collections, and today it numbers among the country's top universal art museums. And marking this benchmark, the James W. and Francis W. McLaughlin Wing opened in 2010. Designed by the late architect Rick Mather in partnership with the Richmond firm SMBW, it replaced the much smaller 1960s, uh, 1976 entrance wing. The soaring glass and limestone building expanded the permanent collection spaces and also provided substantial exhibition galleries for large temporary shows. Now the planning for this particular expansion proved far more encompassing than just the new wing. 
Rick Mather followed a strategic plan laid out by the trustees in the late 1990s to incorporate the entire campus at, along with the historic buildings. And the architectural team planned accordingly. In designing the building, they included large openings and balconies to frame dr dramatic vistas of the surrounding grounds and period architecture. And they transfigured the site. In coordination with Olin Landscape Architects of Philadelphia, the team returned the four acres of the central grounds to green space. They removed the surface parking lots that long dominated the property. Um, and by the way they did that is they designed a <coughs> 600 space parking deck and partially disguised it beneath the terraced garden. The artificial hill is topped with fountains and includes a two-story water stair designed to evoke the fall line of the James River. Of particular significance for the site was the decision by Director Alex Nargis and the trustees to keep the grounds open. Altering the initial plan that would have enclosed the Robin Sculpture Garden within a gated compound, it remains a free-flowing park accessible day and night to both museum visitors and the community. And now Robinson House, with its ever-beckoning Belvedere, invites visitors to come inside to learn about the past, uh, to consider the present, and to imagine the future. Thank you.